Welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating the variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is author, visual artist and sometime musician Zoe Howe. Zoe has produced acclaimed biographies including The Slits, The Jesus and Mary Chain, Wilco Johnson, Stevie Nicks, Florence and the Machine, Lee Brillo and Polystyrene and in 2021 was part of the team behind the award-winning documentary Polystyrene I Am A Cliché. She has made radio programmes for Absolute Radio, Resonance FM and currently presents the wonderful rock and roll witch show on Soho Radio. Musically, Zoe has worked with Viv Albertine, Helen McCookery Book, Steve Beresford, Mick Jones and others. Zoe's debut novel, Shine On Marquee Moon, was shortlisted for the Virginia Prize for Fiction in 2016, whilst her next book, Witchful Thinking, a handbook for the modern wise woman, is to be published by Llewellyn in May 2022. And later this year, we'll also see her revision of the book The Art of Punk released and the launch of The Jam 1982, a collaboration with The Jam's Rick Buckler. Zoe, welcome back to now. Thank you very much. It's it's great to uh, to be uh, heading off to time travel with you. Firstly, congratulations on the success of the wonderful polystyrene documentary. The range of artists that you've worked with and written about is certainly eclectic. And I was wondering what it was that attracts you to the projects that you choose. Well, I think at the heart of it, it tends to be, you know, there's got to be a really interesting human story at the heart of it. But But I tend to be attracted to independent creative spirits I guess and there often has to be a sense of um, you know these people haven't had their dues somehow uh, and I suppose some people might argue you know okay well I can understand that with the slits because when this when I was working on the slits but they're really you know other than those who kind of were really into them people just weren't talking about them thankfully that that is different now I really felt like they deserved a book you know there was that and the same with the Mary Chain. But then, you know, someone might say, well, you did a book about Stevie Nicks, who's a massive star. But for yeah. me, I still felt that a lot of what was really special and continues to be really special about Stevie Nicks isn't really celebrated enough. We take for granted, I think, um, the fact that or we forget the fact that she actually wrote a lot of Fleetwood Mac's biggest hits, you know, often just sort of seen in this rather one dimensional way mm. as this sort of whirling, seductive, you know, mystical rock goddess. But it's like, well, yeah, she is. And she's also a poet and an artist. And she has so many creative sides to her that, you know, get dismissed sometimes. So when I look back at the people I've worked with or the people I've written about, there, there always tends to be a bit of that. And I want to kind of beat the drum for them a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I certainly felt that with the Jesus and me. Chain book, who mm. in a lot of ways had always been seen as just this kind of one dimensional aspect, but actually there's so many different colours and shades to the Reed twins and, you know, and their whole story. Absolutely. Yeah, no, very much so. And, and also to be able to put across their humour as mm. well, because I think a lot of people, again, in that 1D way, we forget that the people we're reading about, the people we're listening to, they're human beings. They've got um, sort of personalities that kind of, you know, certainly in the case of the Reeds, sort of rub up against each other sometimes some yeah. ways in sort of like with a lot of friction and I guess that's part of the myth and the legend of the Mary Chain but at the same time you know certainly working with Jim and Douglas you know they really looked back with a lot of honesty and humour mm. at their journey and I just thought wow that's so fantastic because I think a lot of people kind of see them as these sort of very gloomy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is quite sort of uh, you know doer um, act and I think um, you know to be able to put across how funny they are was yeah. was great was really yeah. great and to have pop stars who don't take themselves that seriously and go do you know what Look, looking back that was kind of a bit daft of me or you know oh god look at me there you know it was just yeah. so refreshing to have that kind of humor the story of polystyrene x-ray specs is one that hasn't been told before that's so true. And, um, you know, it's quite interesting. Is it these kind of very unusual, very unconventional, very brave people like Polly, like Stevie, as, as you say, very different, but also you have those things in common that are part of bands, but are also quite alone. And that's hard. It's hard to still remain 
absolutely yourself when you actually feel a little bit isolated. And I think certainly uh, Polly felt quite isolated, even within X-ray specs. Certainly at the time, you know, they were all very young as well. And she mm-hmm. was going through a lot of um, mental health issues. And, and back then, they're, they're, we didn't have the kind of conversations that we have now. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to imagine how that must have affected her, how lonely that must have been. And despite that, she was so creative, so brave, and just sort of did her thing you know she throughout her whole life she just was absolutely her and I think that's one of the things that I I love about a lot of the stories I work with you know I like people who are you know absolutely themselves and unafraid to put that across no matter how vulnerable that makes them or how you know how scary it is sometimes there's a sort of bravery there and I felt like that about the slits as well mm. they were very brave <laughs> <you know? Yeah. laughs> and uh, and I know and they had each other which is empowering but at the same time we have to kind of transport ourselves a little bit back to that world. To sort of plough that furrow in the 70s, doing what they did was just tremendous and kicked down so many doors for so many artists, I think, that maybe only now are just realising, wow, actually, a lot of this is thanks to groups like the Slits. So from your point of view, what were those early musical memories and what influenced your first listening choices? Oh, well, that's such an exciting question to me because I was so fortunate to grow up in a household that was just jam-packed with records <laughs> and uh, and a great love of records so I always sort of you know when people say oh you know I grew up in a house that we didn't really listen to music I just think god I, I feel very privileged I grew up basically with these two massive influences of my dad's record collection and my sister who was who's seven years older than me my sister was an avid reader of smash hits yeah. and so I had the kind of contemporary pop irreverence of smash hits on the one hand and and I had music that was quote unquote from before my time, which I hate that phrase, by the way, because I think <laughs> music is music is timeless. It, it yeah. works beyond time and space. You know, there was lots of the doors and the who and the Beatles and the Stones. I just was crazy about them. My dad had wonderful taste uh, and there was a lot of Howlin' Wolf. There was a lot of, you know, black music. There was a lot of John Lee Hooker, mm. um, who turns up weirdly on Indeed, this compilation. Yeah. It was like, oh, fantastic. Yeah. So there, there were these two quite distinct influences that I just dived into and there was a bit of contemporary stuff coming in through there too because my dad at the time worked at a radio station um, and he did a rock show and so he would bring home a lot of promos and people would send him stuff and he gave me an old record player that he didn't use anymore that could live in my room and so slowly his record collection started to get sort of mysteriously depleted as I was (laughs) kind of just sneaking away um, seven inches and albums and just just loved it so much so that was really important. Top of the Pops was really important. Loved that, you know. Yeah. But I was obsessed with The Who. And I was obsessed with Keith Moon. I started playing the drums probably because of him. Mad about Pete Townsend. So I very much grew up listening to their records. There was a real seminal moment. I remember standing in my bedroom as a tot and holding in my hands with great... sort of I don't know if reverence is the right word for a record like this, but... <laughs> but <laughs> With great sort of awe and, you know, at the possibilities and the potentials of uh, having a record like this in my hands. The neon green single of the toy dolls Nelly the Elephant. I just jumped up and down on the bed to it. I was mad about it. It was so exciting. And it was cartoon punk, which was very entertaining to me. I loved all that. Loved Jilted John. Loved Splodgeness Abounds. Thought it was yeah. hilarious. Um, so I was kind of the right age for, for, for cartoon punk at the age of three or four. Um, so that was fabulous. Um, so punk was there. Yeah. And of course, that would be reflected later in the stuff that I would go on and do. But when I was born, late 79, they I didn't have a name, I think, for the first few weeks. And I was in hospital. What I did have, I might not have had a name, but what I did have was a very perfect coconutty kind of Mohican. Um, I just was born with a mohawk. Yeah. And the nurses called me Punk Baby. And so little did they know, a bit of early nominative determinism, that, uh, you know, this, this name, punk baby would uh when later when i was like writing about the slits and all the rest i thought oh yeah my my fate was cast it was all it was all supposed to happen wasn't it (laughs) exactly (laughs) you know i remember the first record i bought was falco's rock me amadeus i loved his weirdness Mm. and and certainly in the 80s as well you know, there they felt like there was room for it all. There was room to be yeah. weird. That might have been a hangover from punk and the Blitz Club and all that kind of experimentation. 
And it just fed through into pop in this fantastic way. And also listening to music that was, again, you know, before my time, listening to kind of albums from the 50s, 60s and 70s, you know, we didn't have YouTube in those days. Mm. I didn't know what a lot of these people looked like even. I yeah. just had the songs. So it was this kind of ageless thing. It didn't matter whether they were male or female, you know, where they'd come from. It was just about the songs. Yeah. Um, and, and that, I think, was important to me and continued to be important. You know, I look back with a lot of fondness at kind of if I wanted new music. And when I say new, I mean, a lot of the time I was buying secondhand records from weird old kind of record shops. I'd have to go out and find it, you know, and I'd yeah. have to take a chance. Um, and I spent many ha- happy hours just sort of going to like the local record shops, which were just full of blokes who look like Hawkwind roadies and me, you know, like this little uh-huh. 10 year old, you know, rifling through. And I don't know whether they thought, who's that little girl, you know, because I was too busy, yeah. you know, <laughs> looking for excellent yeah. records. And, you know, it just was, was a thrill for me. And so I, I guess we've, we've lost that a little bit. And it was interesting looking at kind of what was going on in the world in 1992 when I was preparing for this. And, and I think I read something that it was, it was the year that, you know, they finally stopped putting vinyl out and they just mm. we went over to CD, which is kind of this seminal moment. And I hadn't realised that when I first picked this particular yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, now compilation. I thought, God, that's quite poignant in itself because I loved vinyl. Yeah. Um, and I didn't fall in love with CD. And it was very expensive as well. CDs oh, yeah. Yeah. expensive yeah spent about 20 quid on a fat boy slim album and you know you had to really want it yeah you? Yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> exactly i was a cassette fan as well mm. and looking back now they were clunky they were awkward but you had to put effort into them you know yes yeah yes absolutely and i think that makes us appreciate things more doesn't yeah. it if it's too easy for us we just don't appreciate it and again i we can link that to the streaming thing everything's at our fingertips yeah. and so we pick and choose things we, we've probably rarely listen to a whole album all the way through which is you know traditionally how they would have been made to be listened to that way you know it's yeah. a, often it's a story it's an unfolding but cassettes yes I mean if you wanted to <laughs> if you really wanted to just listen to one song it was quite hard work it was a lot of effort of fast forward and then rewind to try and actually find it you know yeah it was mm. a lot of effort but I, that you know just the sound of it yeah. It's so evocative. Very I mean, much. just you saying the word cassette takes me back. I just loved cassettes as well so much. Let's go back to the autumn of 1992. What was life like for you then? Well, life was quite interesting for me because I had just turned 13. So this was the this was a turning point for me. <laughs> and uh, the beginning of my of my reckless teenage years. Uh, <laughs> I can only apologize to my to my parents. But um I was playing the drums and playing in in bands and life was quite fun where we lived at the time as a family um we had quite a big garage and it was perfect for a playing the drums obviously yeah. number one priority <laughs> uh, and and two two <laughs> um it was great for parties and that yeah. didn't actually spill into the house yeah. so it didn't really bother my family so we could have parties and so i i think 1992 was the year of my bad taste party uh, where everyone had to, you know, dress in, in tasteless attire. Um, and uh, which was actually great because for me, the 90s was the time of the charity shop. It was a kind of grungy yeah. time. The 80s, you know, my husband, this he was a teenager in the 80s. So it was all about kind of looking a bit slick mm. and fashion. And, and it sounded quite expensive. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it was like brilliant grunges here. I can just raid the charity shop, which I probably would have been doing anyway. And so, you know, it was just an opportunity to dress up and be silly. So um, I was having kind of lots of fun. And I was sort of making my own compilations, actually, because it was around. Around this sort of time that I guess up to that point, I was still very much immersed in rock, vinyl, you know. So again, another turning point, I was starting to kind of maybe pay more serious attention to what was actually coming out at the time. You know, I would be taping stuff off the radio, which is very naughty, I know. This is the interesting thing. Unlike the Now compilations, you know, my own compilations, and I'm sure it's the same with yours, you know, you're taping them off the radio, or listening to the charts, and you, you couldn't wait, really. It was such a moment every week to listen yeah. to the charts and, and ta- you know, tape what you liked and obviously not what 
you know you wouldn't take what you didn't like whereas with these you know there would be tracks on there that you didn't relate to and you didn't yeah. like but it gives you an overview of what was happening yeah. at the time doesn't it, it they're quite it. interesting as, as as sort of units of time an album like this that was released at that time has the warts and all elements there's no kind of filtering or retrospective hiding things and in a way that's brilliant it is it absolutely is if i didn't like something and and it could be a part of a song that I didn't like, you know, I would be recording it off the radio and then when that part I didn't like came up, I would press pause until it was over and then mm. continue recording. When it, and so I'd end up with these weird kind of collage songs or sort of patchwork together of the bits I liked from them. But I was yeah. quite happy because although they sounded incredibly odd by the time I'd finished with them, they didn't contain the bits that I didn't like. And I, I was thinking, what? you know, I was so hard line about it. It meant so much to me, um, and I'm, so, I'm sure it's the same with lots of, you know, your listeners. You know, when music means that much to you, you take you do take it quite seriously, don't you? Yeah. Um, it's so much a part of your day. It's so much a part yeah. of how you feel or how you want to feel. And I suppose also thinking about it, because I'd immersed myself in what I think is, you know, really the best music, that by the time it came to kind of stuff that was coming out in the 90s, it had to be damn good if it was going to end up on my tape in, in its entirety. Otherwise, it was going to get chopped and edited. Now 23, the number one album with John Cicada. The number one hit from Charles and Eddie. Simply Red, Undercover and Billy Ray Cyrus. Now 23 was the number one from Tasmin Archer. The number one from The Shaman, plus Rage and Irma Franklin. 39 top chart hits on the number one album. Now 23, that's what I call music. We are talking about Now 23. And Now 23 was released 16th of November 92. There's 39 songs on this album. That's ridiculous. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is just... 1992, first of all, is a strange year for pop. It's almost kind of falling between different worlds where you've got that kind of early 90s, big optimistic dance and indie and that kind of thing. And then obviously what happened later on as the 90s progressed. It's almost like a holding period before something happens. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it hadn't really struck me until I was sort of really kind of thinking about this. And I thought, oh, God, yeah, it's a real kind of apex between two eras, isn't it? And you've got stuff that's kind of starting to die away and stuff that's starting to kind of burgeon and you've mm. got you've got a little bit of everything on yeah. this compilation. It still felt like in a way we were slightly kind of just recovering from the 80s. Yes. And the 80s, to yeah. me, I was a kid during the 80s, so my memory of the 80s is probably quite different to, you know, people who were adults in the 80s. But to me, it was fun and sparkly, Christmassy. Mm. It was just such a joyful time. Maybe, you know, when we get, get into the 90s, yes, you've got that kind of wit in... You know, the songs by, by Pulp, maybe. Who, who mm. I wasn't in love with Pulp particularly. But it all started to become a little bit more arch, a little bit more knowing. Yes, yes, and, it uh, did. And it just the, had a different mood. There wasn't that kind of free-spirited fun that you had no. in the 80s. And actually looking at this album, I'm not going to say there's not much fun on it because there's lots of great pop moments, but there's none of that kind of carefree-spirited that you may have had a couple of years earlier. No, that's really true. And, you know, there's some songs on there that I absolutely love, but they're quite tough listens, actually. Um, like Digging in the Dirt by Peter Gabriel. Love yeah. that song. In fact, weirdly, I'd forgotten that it was a single. I mm. thought I, I just remember it in the context of the album, yeah. which was yeah. Us. When I heard that song, it just kind of blew my head off. It was so tense and brilliant, but the words were so unequivocally harsh and painful yeah. and bitter and I suppose it reflected a kind of relationship that I certainly hadn't had any experience of. You know, it, it was quite shocking, I thought. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The carefreeness of, of the 80s is definitely not evident in that song, at least. Looking across the tracks, there's a lot of 80s hangover still on here. But there's also, yeah. you know, there's, there's acts that, that could quite easily, and, and in fact, in some cases, were released in the 80s, um, that were getting mm. re-released again. There was that CD culture that you mentioned of mm. 1992, where CD was just huge. And that, I think, is reflected on here. But there's also bands that I think they were clinging on to the 90s as well, like your Go Wests and yes. various other people who actually could have been released at any point up to this yeah. time, but were still there. So there's this kind of weird, almost kind of shuffling out of something, but we're still waiting for the new to come in. It's, that's so true. It's a weird mix of, as you say, certain things being kind of, filtered out you know there's a tide that's going out 
yeah. there's a tide that's coming in and we're at that kind of in-between point. And I suppose, you know, for me, I felt like that kind of reflected where I was at personally as well because I'm like, you know, I'm tipping into a kind of, you know, towards adulthood or, yeah. you know, being a woman or however you want to put it and, you know, everything that goes with that. So this kind of feeling of, of turning points was very poignant to me, but also socially. I was looking back, I mean, a lot of these things would have probably passed me by at the time, but I do remember certain really big things happening this year that filter into that kind of mood that we were talking about, that mood of maybe disillusionment hmm. um, and, and of kind of the dreams of the 80s. Famously, the Annus Horribilis that the Queen talked about, yeah. you know, the royal family. You know, my family, and i never never particularly big fans of the royal family, hmm. but just from a a human point of view, you know, especially during the tough times, you want a little bit of escape. But, you know, and then and then you had the Tories coming in for another term and there was a kind of loss of hope. Yeah. Um, Kinnock was, was, was out and, you know, it just didn't feel like a hopeful time, did no. it? And I think that did impact on that next period of pop culture. Etched on my memory uh, is, is when they had that enormous sort of mega concert in tribute, yeah. you know, the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. It was so amazingly over the top. I mean, I loved Freddie Mercury and I loved Queen. And, and so I was glued to that concert. Mm. And it felt it felt like a kind of, you know, that sort of the magnitude of, of those sort of big stadium concerts of the 80s. But it also f- felt like kind of the last time that was going to happen. I don't know if I'm thinking of that in hindsight, but it felt like another thing that was of the, you know, that's another door kind of closing there. The Freddie Mercury concert actually cast quite a long shadow over right. 1992, because, you know, and we see it a lot on this album, you know, you've got Brian May on there, you've mm. got Freddie doing Barcelona again as well. But actually, there's a lot of artists that performed at that concert as well. As we move into 93, 94, there wasn't the same place for that type of social gathering. I mean, I suppose in some ways you could say something like Nebworth, Oasis, you know, those mm. types of things later on. But even though they weren't the same as no. those big Freddie Mercury concerts. No, and I, I remember saying to my my dad who are the big stars like the big big stars now because you know when I thought of big stars I thought of people like Freddie Mercury I thought of Elton mm. John you know I thought of those kind of guys you know Bowie I thought who who do we have now and it's like it started to become more divided and yeah. it started to become maybe more tribal so you know like as you say Oasis at Nebworth undoubtedly huge but I don't know if they united people in the same way as some of those big, no, big stars, no. you know, Paul McCartney or whatever. I, I, what can I no. say? It's just, it's not for me. But yeah, it's that kind of sense of, yes, they were massive stars and I respect that. You know, lots of people loved them and really got something out of it, but yeah. they didn't have that unifying No, and I think that's, effect. that's the difference because taking something like Nebworth as an example, it wasn't inclusive. I think that's the main thing. That's a really good point. It's that inclusivity thing. Such a good point. Where do you want to start then? Well, I think I want to start with Sleeping Satellite. Oh, yes, please. Yeah, by Tasman Archer. I remember very clearly the moment of sitting by the radio with my cassette in, finger on pause, ready for for what I wanted to include and indeed what I wanted to exclude. And I remember hearing Sleeping Satellite for the first time and just being kind of enchanted and transported by it. You know, a lot of the music I was listening to at that time, interestingly, Rage Against the Machine's debut album had just come out a couple of weeks before this came out. I was mad about Rage Against the Machine. They are the only band I've ever had a band t-shirt for. That's literally the only band t-shirt I've ever worn was for Rage Against the Machine. Um, And they just blew my head off (laughs) and they (laughs) politicised me at a really important time. And and so that, you know, I was kind of going through a bit of phase of, of rage at that time, so to speak. And so, so, so to hear Tasman Archer, this completely different kind of music coming out just at the same time, was just this kind of moment of balm and beauty yeah. and mystery and, and had this kind of synesthetic kind of effect on me where I kind of started to see it in colours. And I know that sounds like I was probably on acid. I, was, I wasn't. There were no drugs in the house. It was just so beautiful and interesting as a song. Um, I thought it would also be an interesting one to talk about because... Right now, we are in the phase of the dark to new moon. Again, it's another turning point moment. Yeah. It's it's between waning and waxing again. It's this moment of kind of pause almost. And so it does seem to me like a sleeping satellite. So the, the dark moon time seems like a good time to listen to, to or think about yeah. sleeping satellite. So there's something kind of magical to it connected with my interest in that side of life as well that kind of more esoteric side mm. so uh, I always think of it as well it's a very autumnal sound mm, to yes. it, and it fitted that that time in the charts perfectly well so we're off and running John Cicada 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, for me, that that would have been uh, a no-no for me. I would have skipped past him. All I can say is too whiny. When I hear this, I there's one word comes to mind: waistcoat. Waistcoat. Uh, oh yes, that was the time of the waistcoat. There was that time of that kind of soul-searching men in waistcoats mm. type song, and yeah, I think John Cicada kind of does that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it's that time where I suppose a little bit of a throwback to the eighties. The the production is yeah. you know impeccable, um, just not for me. Charles and Eddie, would I lie to you? That's yeah. fantastic. I I, I yeah. still love hearing that. Yeah. Do you like that song? I love it. And actually, again, I would put that along with Tasman Archer as in a timeless track. Definitely. They've got that sort of, they're, you know, that reflection of Motown. They've kind of really got it down, yeah. that sound. Um, it's kind of sexy. It's uplifting. It's got a, a, you know, it's got a high vibration to it, it, it without wishing to sound like a, a massive hippie. <laughs> <laughs> I am on the quiet, really. But yeah, no, it's I, I love that song and uh, was was thrilled to find it on on this collection because um, I knew that I had to pick this one just just on the strength of Tasman Archer because it yeah. it really was a moment hearing that. But then I was like, oh, Charles and Eddie, of course, yeah. loved that. That definitely went on uh, on my compilation unedited. I'm happy to oh. say. What else did they do? It felt like it was a bit of a one hit wonder. Well, um, they released another album in 1995 um, okay. but I don't think it went very well and I think they split up in 97 so I just don't think they got the break to be honest because there no. was obviously great songwriting great vocal performances in there but um, I'm sure I'm sure there's probably a, a great lost classic in there somewhere can I go to track four and go to Please Was do. Not Was mm. shake your head because this is brilliant mm, it is it's so wacky so do you know the story of this song no Right, okay, so this was originally released in 1983 um, and Ozzy Osbourne is one of the lead vocalists on it. But at the time, they used a New York session singer to do the female part and it was Madonna. Oh. And so this version had been knocking around for quite a few years and then it came to 1992 and was not was decided they were going to re-release it as part of a greatest hits type compilation and Madonna's record company said, no, you can't do it. We're not, we're not releasing it. And I'm brought in, who's the second best? Kim Bassinger. Well, I'd probably rather listen to Kim than Madonna, to be fair. Yeah, she does a pretty decent <laughs> version of it, to be honest. Um, and yeah, and, and, and that's it. And, and now seemingly, if you've, got, you know, if you've got a copy of any version of this that Madonna sings on, then it's worth a pretty penny, believe it. Oh, so, I say. Yeah. It's a very kind of, that, you know, that kind of housey style of kind of pop. There was a lot of it around in 92. Yeah, there, there was. But it worked really well. And there's always that clever knowingness of was not was, because they're obviously, yeah. they've been around for years. I mean, I have to say, listening to this again, it does kind of, you know, as an adult... So, yeah. you know, arguably, allegedly, <laughs> um, it, got, <laughs> it does sort of encourage you into, you know, down rabbit holes, doesn't it? And yes. kind of make you want to kind of go back to the the, the artist's other work and stuff. So it's, it's really it's really good for that. Where do you want to go next? Well, I'm going to skip over Bob Marley and go west. I actually really love Bob Marley. I'm just not mad about that particular song. And we have already um, given props to go west. I think it's fair to say. I would say so. It was a slightly embarrassing video that went with this song as well. So I'm going to move swiftly on from it um <laughs> no i'm not i'm gonna talk about it oh and yeah because i don't i think i've seen that i mean it's just like you know you think oh things weren't that it's not that long ago the 90s and then you see some of the videos and you're like mm, yeah we kind yeah. of um that probably wouldn't fly now or at least i hope not go west to chaps in sort of loose fitting groovy suits uh doing their thing and then you have these kind of cutaways to presumably the the lady um that he's singing about and and she's sort of wearing almost nothing and kind of gyrating in, <laughs> in oh, a no. very kind of um raunchy way and you just think it's just a weird contrast seeing you know two completely clothed gents yeah. and and you just think oh no it's just like oh it's that thing again which we all sort of didn't yeah. you know bat an eyelid at the time no. but now and it's if... like oh my god either all wear clothes or all wear the thong but you yeah. know don't, <laughs> not yeah. this disparity come on it's got to be fair so we'll um, move on from that but too funky george michael mm. which again another sort of turning point feeling for me because you know you you had the George Michael of the 80s and then you had the George Michael of the 90s and beyond there's a definite apex here for George Michael because George was wrangling with Sony at this point as well it was very much part as well um there was the Red Hot and Dance project AIDS charity project and George steered that significantly and gave them this brand new track which was which was too funky that's interesting I like it more than I remembered liking yeah. it at the time uh, the video is quite interesting as well 
because it's full of kind of supermodels. It's very yeah. glamorous. And it's kind of funny when you kind of pull your sort of proverbial camera out and you kind of look at the sort of general landscape of the time because I think of the early 90s, you know, remember Grebo? So we had Carter and we had um, EMF and the Wonder Stuff and all yeah. those guys that pop elite itself. So to me, that was pro- quite dominant. Yes. And so look at, the, oh, there's none of that on here. There's weirdly, none of that at all no, on here. 92 seemed to be a fallow Grebo year. But, you know, so I was thinking of that and I looked at this video and I was like, that is so polar opposite yeah. to the kind of general mood that I remember. I was waiting to death my, my first pair of Doc Martens out in the student unions. Watching back this video now, this was a world I did not recognise at all in 1992, yeah. catwalks and supermodels and everything else. But no, it's interesting you say that, you know, there's, there is very little Grebo on here at all. Yeah. Um, and, it's- you know, it's been a big year for Carter, but they're not here. I know, it's odd, isn't it? It's very yeah. strange. So it's just, yeah. I don't know if it just sort of falls between the cracks or maybe they were just on the previous one or the next one. But yeah. um, but it just was weird because I was like, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that part of the 90s. That kind of super glossy Versace, Christy Turlington, um, Linda Evangelista kind of thing. I'd yeah. just kind yeah. of, you know, forgotten about it because that was all going on too. This is a George Michael song you don't hear very often either. No. It's, it's not one that you hear on the radio or people talk about. And it's it works. It's George doing what George does. Yeah, you know. definitely, definitely. It's just, I suppose, with an artist like George Michael, and actually, going back to what we were saying before about, you know, who were the big stars, I would put George Michael in that category, actually, because he oh, really yeah. was, you know, yeah. in every sense, a superstar. Um, but because when you've got someone who has such an incredible high-quality output over the years, mm-hmm. we all get a little bit spoilt, don't we, by, yeah. you yeah. know, by these amazing songs and hit after hit. And so it's very easy for an otherwise, you know, a brilliant song to fall between the cracks. Um, whereas if someone else had put it out who maybe didn't have that kind of history, that you might be going, wow, that's a fantastic song. You might take more notice of it. But yeah. it's just because it's within this canon of just mighty songs. Absolutely. Um, that I guess, it, 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 yeah, it's easier for it to fall between the cracks. Maybe. Yeah. When I was going back through these tracks and I was looking for signs of where the, the 90s were going, the next track... Arrested mm. Development and People yeah. Every Day, it just felt like this ray of sunshine yes. because it's so it is so indicative of where hip hop and R and B were looking to move in the nineties, mm. and and also the way it would influence the mainstream as well. Yeah. Absolutely, and it's, it's interesting. I've not really kind of thought about it in this way before, but the moments of uplift. And the the really special moments I think mm. on this compilation are brought to us by black artists. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I just realised, just so, you know, you know, you got Tasmin, you have got um, Charles and Eddie, and, mm. and, and Arrested Development. You know, it's just so far they are for me my favourite moments on this compilation. So, and then of course, again, we'll move on. But <laughs> you know, John Lee Hooker makes yeah. his way onto there as well. You know, and I just really, you know, they bring something really special whereas kind of you know I think a lot of white artists were still kind of as you say working out where they were going and what they were doing and then you've got people like Erasure who you know obviously were massive in the 80s and they're kind of you know they're changing like George Michael there's a change of foot they feel like they maybe have to change Arrested Development do bring a kind of ray of sunshine and a a, a kind of relaxed it's very relaxed like it's always been there you know like the best pop tracks it doesn't feel contrived or forced you know it is interesting just talking about the white artists in some shape or form because a lot of them also are experienced album artists and that's where the likes of your Genesis the huge massive gobbling Simply Red which is next on you which I don't have a lot to say about to be honest even artists like Crowded House who are you know fabulous Genesis and so on they were kind of in that kind of album bracket and that's Mm. why I think there's a slight dearth of really inspirational seven inches on this album yeah, that's that's a really good point, definitely. And you know, yeah, definitely swap part. Go, go past simply red that yeah, for, well, for your just... babies. I just, no, I mean even the title. Oh god, no, no, I just it's, no, cringed. No, 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 not for me. I'd forgotten why alive and kicking was on here. Well, I simple, that, which I love, by the way. But yes, you know that goes back. That and erasure were part of big album, big greatest hits album releases. So Alive oh. and Kicking was was put out as a double A side. Remember those kids? Double A sides? Uh, <laughs> put out as a double A side with Love Song, which is a much better oh, song, actually. Fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah. And they and they were promoting Simple Minds' first best of, which is called Glittering Prize. Erasure were doing the same with pop. 
which was their big compilation album. And actually later on, we'll talk about ABBA because ABBA put out ABBA Gold. So mm. all these artists were basically promoting greatest hits albums. And that's why they were there. That's So why was John Lee Hooker on there? Was it a similar sort of thing? Was it a reissue? It was Jeans. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, was it in a film or so? It was Jeans. It was Jeans. Well, so I, actually, we can take that and Irma Franklin together because yes. that's your two. And then also from a product placement point of view, we're doing Lee Jeans and Levi Jeans. So that's good. Irma Franklin was, was the Levi ad. John Lee Hooker was the, was the Lee Jeans ad. Other jeans are available, ladies Other and gentlemen. Other jeans are available. Okay, so yeah, because you had all that as well. And, and actually, advertising in the 90s, there was some amazing music being used. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, that might be the first time that people heard um, Etta James maybe would be. Um, oh, yeah. And you know, the Diet Coke ad and things yeah. like that. They were really kind of going for some, you know, making some amazing choices. And, of course, then that kind of gets introduced to a new audience and, you know, whatever works, whatever yeah. gets people listening to John Lee Hooker is, is, is a good thing. And, you know, Boom Boom is a wonderful song. It, it yeah. definitely it was one of Lee Brillo's favourites when I was um, – when I was working on the book about Lee Brillo from Dr. Feelgood, mm. I think it might have been Lee's widow or it might have been Anne Adley, who was the secretary for the Dr. Feelgood kind of uh, HQ, as it were. Mm. She was very, very helpful, as as, as was Shirley, um, Lee's widow, and, and many other people. Um, mm. But one of the goodies that um, Anne sent to me was this great list um, that Lee had written to a fan I think this this fan had written, or, or maybe it was someone he'd been interviewed by, said, you know, what are your top 10 favourite blues tracks? And Boom Boom was quite high up on the list, as I recall, and lots of other brilliant, yeah. brilliant songs. So I always remembered that because I'm a big fan of John Lee Hooker as well. So yeah. it was yeah. quite funny to sort of see it on here. It's fascinating listening to you talk about Lee Brilla there because actually hearing Boom Boom in my head, you can actually hear that in so many of the Dr. Feelgood tracks. Totally. Now, there is definitely footage of them doing it live um, and just so excited. They just were crazy about the blues and they didn't really care about what, what was trendy. Yeah. Um, and so they were just like, look, let's just do what we want. And um, I think when you do something with that kind of sincerity, it often does tend to work. It does tend to fly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah you can't absolutely. go wrong, really. So we're not talking Billy Cyrus, are we? <laughs> no, we're going to pretend that doesn't exist. I think. We're going to do a, a Zoe edit. Of that album yeah. there. I'm going to skip past that. Cancelled. Um, uh, yes, I know. If only. Uh, little, little Angels. Yeah, Little yeah. Angels. I didn't remember this, to be honest. Not, not on my radar, I have to no. say. But they came from Scarborough. Fair play to them. I mean, <laughs> Richard Marks, in other words, a kind of like power pop kind of thing, in the sort of category of the, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, aforementioned Cicada. Yeah. Would you say? Waistcoat, definitely definitely yeah. another waistcoat. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I've written on my notes for this is it's not as good as Hazard. That's about it, to be oh, honest. Oh, fair enough. But we're going to fit him into the giant waistcoat that is currently encompassing John Cicada, Michael yep. Bolton, Curtis Steigers. There probably are others, aren't oh, there? I, there's probably others before we hit the end of this album, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, they're actually but, there to come. Um, so then we've got Genesis. Yeah, I mean... Again, this this just screams album act to me. And it's also as, you know, as great as the mighty Genesis, I have to say that, because the likes of Daryl Easley will pick me up if I don't. Oh, gosh, yes, absolutely. Um, it is Twilight Years Genesis, let's be honest. Yeah, sorry, Daryl, but it was on my bad taste playlist for the, <laughs> for the party. What can I say? I was young. I was young yeah. and foolish. Uh, actually, I am going to put a bit of a shout out for NXS here because mm. um, Baby Don't Cry was a kind of later period NXS, but actually still a pretty decent big track. I love um, in excess. I, yeah. I I sort of am always slightly mystified that people don't talk about them more. It's, I know yeah. there's a film, isn't there? There's a film that came out recently. There was a wonderful Denial. documentary, yeah, mm. um, which which looks at the story of Michael Hutchinson in excess, uh, which is really really good, actually, really really well recommended. Within the eighties and that early nineties period, not talked about much anymore. I don't know if in excess just fall between the gaps a wee bit. Maybe. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think also it depends on where you are at personally when those, you know, big songs come out or when you first hear yeah. or see see a group. I mean, I remember when I first saw In Excess, I suppose it would have been, when I say I saw them, I mean like on the telly. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> they used to televise the Montreux Rock Festival, didn't they, yeah, in, the, yeah. in the 80s? And uh, we used to record it on Betamax. <laughs> and I just loved it. And it was just sort of, 
certain bands because they were all you know mainly miming I suppose but but it was just to me it was exciting in excess I remember doing listen like thieves oh yeah and Oh my god! I just thought oh, it was so great. So I exciting. love that album so much. I really do. Yeah. And and it's you know always point people back to that and the album before that, which is called The Swing. There's this swagger and confidence. I think actually that's why people often don't listen back to an excess. There was a kind of that kind of confidence, and it wasn't misplaced confidence. They were a really decent band, mm. um, but I think that puts people off because we don't like people that look too <laughs> confident or carry it off too no. well. That's true. That's such a British thing, isn't it? It is, yeah. This album that it came from in 92 is quite an experimental album. I think it came off the back of Acton Baby. It's a big production. It yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's not my favourite moment of In Excess, but I, I do, you know, even when In Excess aren't great, they're still better than quite a lot of people. Exactly, I think, you know? exactly. And I, I can definitely see that connection uh, with, with Acton Baby, absolutely. Yeah. And, and actually, I really loved that album. I had that on cassette. I remember yeah. my sister giving it to me for my birthday and... Um, I really loved it. I thought it was a really good um, moment for for you two. And I, I actually, I know that it's a kind of, um, you know, you two are quite polarising, aren't they? And my mm. dear departed friend Gavin Martin will probably uh, uh, tell me off <laughs> for saying anything positive about you two. But yeah, Acting Baby was was quite special, and I can definitely see the connection with where in excess we're at at this time. So this this side finishes off Crowded House. I'm not going to say anything bad at all about Crowded House because I love no. Crowded House. I think they're mm. fabulous. But this is an album track and it goes back to what we were saying earlier. It's not what you would call a dazzling seven inch. It's just a nice Crowded House song. It's it's true. I I actually really loved Split Ends more than Crowded House. I know that you don't have to choose, but for me, Crowded House, yeah, lots of fantastic songs just don't light me up really. But I can acknowledge them as fine pieces of work. In the Key of Q is a podcast series showcasing gay and bi musicians from around the world. Musicians like a natural. I'm in love with this game with. Musicians like Brandon James Gwynn. I tried to be good, but baby, I don't try too hard. And musicians like Q-Boy. Communities are made up from the smallest of minds. Negative reactions what I used to get all the time. In the Key of Q is available now from all good podcast feeds. So, yeah, we mentioned Erasure. This this was a remix of their first single. Did slightly better second time round. Again, I love Erasure, but... Yeah, this didn't grab me. At the no. time or subsequently. They'd had a really good run of hits up to this point, Erasure, because they'd had the big abba EP. They had all yes. of that and they, they'd kick-started all of the ABBA stuff in the year, which we're going to come to probably <laughs> quite soon because <laughs> um, it's it's there as well. But it, yeah. it just felt a bit of a damp squib. It did. But, you know, I, I wasn't, a, you know, I didn't really pay much attention to Erasure, I suppose, when I, you know, actually looking back, I can appreciate them more. Mm. Um, and Andy Bell's fantastic voice, you know, it's just... Yeah. Again, it's all about where you're at at the time and what age you are and what you're giving your attention to. Yeah. And I think even though, like Grebo, grunge is not reflected here, I was no, massively, massively into grunge. And I think that took a lot of my attention away ah, from artists yeah. like Eurasia. I was much more interested in uh, in, yeah. in Nirvana and I and, and um, playing the drums along to, uh, you know, to, to Nirvana and Pearl Jam and people like that. That was, you know. You're not going to uh, play the drums along to this, are you? <laughs> Love no. like Sorry, Erasure. I'd quite like to try, just as an experiment. <laughs> Maybe really, but... quite good. Yeah, you could rock it up a bit. It'd be quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. A great philosopher once wrote, "Naughty, very naughty." Ebenezer Good with two E's, which bothered me. Uh, yeah. But I suppose I suppose that is a, probably a drugs reference that I was too young to understand at the time. I, I believe there's all sorts of subliminal messages in here that every member of the shaman have written a contract to say absolutely not. It's all no about it's all about this chap. Um, <laughs> again, I've been watching the top of the pop reruns on on BBC Four. There's an unabashed joy about the shaman at this point, and they had moved into this carry on world <laughs> for the short period because they'd been quite an important band on the dance scene and everything else. You can see them going. We know this is going to be a huge hit. Yeah, no, it's wild and and fantastic. And it's one of those, you know, whether you like it or you don't, you can't forget it. You know, it's no. an unforgettable moment of the 90s. I actually thought, I know they were saying E's are good, E's are good. I actually thought they were saying knees are good, knees are good. And I thought, well, yes, they are. They are. You know, I, I wouldn't be without mine. They are, they're important. Yeah, the older I get as well, the more I need to look after my knees. That This is something yeah. people don't tell you at the time. Yes. 
So actually, this is an important message. Knees are good. It, knees are good. And this is why they were like, no, it's not about E. It's about knees and, and sort of maybe taking some supplements that might yep. help, you know, like turmeric or cod liver oil. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure so. that was in the lyrics, but it's very hard to hear them. The shaman were quite shamanic. Well, obviously. yeah, if you're going to call so yourself the shaman, yeah. You may as yeah. well be kind of promoting herbal remedies for your joints. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh dear. Do you want to see it? Do you want to see anything about rage run to you? Um, I don't think I, I need no. to, to sort of say. Is, are we talking waistcoat again? Are we? Can we Probably. squeeze them into the waistcoat? Oh, I think I think so. I think quite a few of these. You know, the only waistcoat that's not on this album, Doctor Alban's not on this album. Oh yeah. He was a Hang big on. waistcoat as well. Oh. God, you know, we're going to have to undo some buttons on this waistcoat to fit, so. you know, it's get, it's or maybe elasticate bigger. the flanks, maybe. <laughs> I just can't <laughs> believe you've used the phrase elasticate the flanks. That's brilliant. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> it was a first for me, I have to say. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Probably a first for the podcast, but I'm, I, I am <laughs> loving it. And I'm, th- I'm going to think how tomorrow in general conversation, I'm going to use that phrase. <laughs> we're in this kind of dance phase here. So, yeah. and I'm guessing for the 13-year-old Zoe, a lot of this would have probably passed you by. It would, actually. Although I did enjoy Temptation by Heaven 17. I suppose um, I, can't, I just can't deny my retro side, I guess. Yeah. Um, that that is one that, that I would naturally gravitate to and, and pick out. Although I did, I appreciated the uh, the talents of Angie Brown. So that, you know, that would have been something I'd have probably oh, yeah. enjoyed listening yeah. to. And that Bizarre Ink track hasn't dated as badly as a lot of the other tracks have. E17. Where you take that at E17? Oh, no. I just can't be doing with E17, I'm afraid. Well, at least as a band. I'm sure as chaps, they, they're, they're lovely. But no, I, I had no time for them at the time. I felt like, oh, this is really snobbish of me, but I felt like it wasn't pitched. I felt like I was far too old and sophisticated <laughs> for E17, even though I was probably the exact age that they were pitched at. <laughs> but no, I was, I was, I probably would have thought, why listen to E17 when I could listen to LA Woman by the Doors or something like that? I just didn't know. But didn't, didn't one of them get injured by a potato or something like that? There was I like think... a story... I think Brian Harvey, it was something to do with a baked potato and a car reversing over his foot or something. Oh, my God. I mean, that does sound very painful. and I, I shouldn't be facetious, because, but it was the, the addition <laughs> of the potato to the legend that I suppose Just, <laughs> slightly... Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, moving on. Um, <laughs> the Farm mm. singing Human League. Yeah, that was strange. You know, you've got two good elements there. Bring them together and... And, 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 and you get this. So do you know where this came from? NME was 40 years old. Right. In 1982. So they decided to put together a compilation album alongside wonderful Radio 1 FM. And what they did was they asked lots of people to cover number one singles. And they put out an album called Ruby Tracks, which is fab. This was from that album. So on there, you've got the Wonder Stuff singing Cause I Love You right. by Slade. Yes. Uh, the Jesus and Mary chain do Little Red Rooster, which is pretty impressive. Fantastic. Yes, I remember that. So you've got a big indie run here. Sinetian, Fatima Mansions, Carter, Blur, House of Love, Frank and Walters, EMF. It's Grebo. It's 1992. <laughs> And which track did they pick to promote that album on Now 23? The Farm. Oh, wow. But two tracks I would mention that if you can try and find a copy of this Ruby Tracks compilation album. The first is Curve doing a version of I Feel Love, which is pretty impressive. And also Vic Reeves' cover of Vienna, which wasn't even a number one. (laughs) Oh, I just wanted to do it. It's bonkers. That's a great tip. Yeah, very much so. Never Let It Slip Away, another cover version, Undercover. Yes, but again, it's one of those things where you think, you know, it's. I love the original and I just thought, well, why? I didn't really feel like enough in the way of newness was brought to it. No, 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 no. It's it's a completely irrelevant track, is I think what we're trying to say here, (laughs) Uh, to be honest. But what I will say, because there'll be people listening to the podcast who will know this, Mm. one of the members of Undercover was a guy called Steve Mack, who has gone on now to write pretty much every song of the 21st century for the likes of Ed Sheeran and Adele. And and if we don't mention that, somebody will get back to me afterwards and say, yeah, but Steve Mack was an undercover. So, um, well, fair play. I mean, no, again, not throwing any shade, just, just you know, full throw respect. Shade, sorry, throw shade, Throw shade. I wouldn't dream of it. I probably no, already have thrown no. quite a lot of shade generally. Right. But uh, no, lovely song, though. Lovely song. <laughs> said with great, great aplomb. Um, were you a gamer in 1992? Definitely not. No. Tetris and Super Mario Land. Yeah, I remember it. I remember people being into it, yeah. but it did not touch my life, put it that way. I was too busy um, trying to play the drums. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
So we're on to the last record for the last side. Roxette. I liked Roxette, actually. I've grown more to like Roxette over the years, yeah. I think I would probably say. I don't think at the time I would have cared greatly for this track. but um, I've forgotten about this one, and I am perturbed by the um, the fact that it's called How Do You Do with an exclamation mark rather than a question mark. Oh, I never noticed that. It's upsetting. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. I know. Do you want to move on? I'm <laughs> no, happy if you want no. to. No, it's okay. I'll just, I'll just take a drink and we can dwell. Take as long as you need with this, Ian. Take as long as you need. This is ABBA Gold. All of ABBA's biggest hits and dance floor classics on one amazing album. Yeah, Dancing Queen by ABBA, which was out basically because of ABBA Gold. ABBA Gold yes. was, was reissued. Yeah, I mean, what we can't even talk about ABBA because ABBA's just beyond reproach, aren't they? They are, apparently, yes. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, fabulous, obviously. Yes. I, it, well, I funnily enough, I worked with our mutual friend, Daryl Eastley. We were part of the team behind um, a relatively recent... Exhibition, an ABBA exhibition at the O2. Oh, yeah. We yeah. worked as sort of researchers and writers and, you know, all the rest of it. So that was quite interesting. Here comes a confession. <laughs> I was very conscious of being probably the only person on the team that didn't really like ABBA very much. <laughs> but I grew to um, have a healthy respect for them. Actually, I realised, I suppose it's that kind of project where you immerse yourself in the work and, and actually you think well you know oh that song yeah I'd forgotten that no I do like that one and then he kind of more and more unfolds yeah. and you're like actually yeah I, I don't know it's not a snobbery thing and I think if you say I think sometimes if you're you know not a wild fan sometimes mm. it's good to have someone like that working on a project like that it's, it's good yeah. to have a mix of people it's like when you're writing a biography and people assume oh you must be their biggest fan to do that actually it's better if you're not their biggest oh, fan oh yeah because yeah. You, you, you can't just write it in this sort of starry eyed way you have to be able to kind of ask questions that maybe someone who's just in love with them yeah. uh, wouldn't I, I grew up in a family who really loved ABBA and I think most people do love ABBA and I remember making the mistake of expressing that I didn't quite feel the same way to my mum <laughs> and, she, and she just was like well it was just like it just it was unacceptable it was yeah. it's just like it just it's not Things possible from you're doing on. it to be different or you know you're doing yeah. it just to be obstreperous and I really wasn't so you have to be very careful because mm. it is such a sacred cow and and it's almost like if you say you're not too keen then you're you're doing it to look cool yeah. and, I, and I and I wasn't but I know there are songs that I love um dancing queen I can understand why people love it. That's about as far as I can. Oh, do you know, but actually, if I never heard Dancing Queen again, I think yeah. the thing is, I mean, back then in 92, ABBA weren't cool again. Mm. This was just the beginning of that happening. As we talk today, 2022, that ABBA Gold album is still in the top 40. Wow. So we go from ABBA being the real thing and we go to Bjorn again, which is not the real thing. This is Pop Will Eat Itself. This is an yeah. Australian tribute act covering ABBA who were covering Erasure, who'd <laughs> yeah. been covering ABBA and everything just sucks itself into the uh, thing. And it reached the dizzy heights of number 25, that track, which is probably right, to be yeah. honest. Vanessa Paradis, Be My Baby. Yeah, I, I kind of didn't really, this just didn't really kind of uh, figure on my radar at the time. Betty Boo, however, lots of fun and really yeah. just, she had a sort of night. Uh, there are lots of kind of 90s moods, but she had a kind of 90s spirit, didn't she, Betty Boo? Hmm. Um, but had a little bit of that kind of, an injection of that sort of 80s fun yeah. playfulness, almost like a cartoon character. That's a track at the time I probably didn't pay much attention to, but now mm. that is a brilliant pop song. Yeah. There. It is pop. It is no inhibitions. It is just a really great track. And again, she was on the Top of the Pops reruns quite recently singing this. And it just looks like some so much fun. There so. was that kind of layer of 90s pop that was fun in a slightly retro-y, rather yeah. cart well, very cartoony way. And I suppose it also leads me on to D-Light, mm, people like that yeah, as well. Yeah. That kind of just fun for fun's sake, but actually really good pop songs. Yeah, no, I, I loved it. And I love Betty Boo. And she's still making music now. And she's, she's you know, back. just as fabulous as yeah. ever. Sophie B. Oh, Hopkins. This is a moment. This oh, it's great, is isn't it? just fantastic. It's so dramatic and it's really kind of sexy and obsessive. I kind of put her in this sort of category of singers like Zoe, my namesake Zoe, who had yeah. like maybe one or two big hits, but they were really good. They yeah. were really good. They oh, had a yeah. real kind of mood to them. Yeah. But this one is. 
I don't know, there's something really powerful about it. And when you hear it now, it sort of almost makes you feel slightly uncomfortable. There's so much sexual energy in that song as well. Yeah. You know, there's Definitely. a real longing in the in the lyrics, and it's got that brilliant John Bonham drum <gasps> sample in there yes. as well. It's just brilliant. And it, again, it goes back to what we were saying about Charles and Eddie. If you can only do one track and mm. and make a mark, you're going to make it with this. Completely, it's totally mm. intense, yeah. isn't it? It's totally intense and and ageless. It's just like a kind of there's nothing kind of light about it. Now, I don't know if you're into your astrology, Ian. I'm a Scorpio, and this is a very Scorpio song. Right. And so because it's it's, you know, the qualities of Scorpio are intensity, you know, they are quite mm. obsessive. Lo and behold, I had I had forgotten that this song came out at this specific yes. time, which is Scorpio season. So this song is literally a Scorpio. Um it's just it's got that kind of intensity, that sexiness. It's like, you know, it's so so that was kind of interesting for me. So I kind of connected with it on that level as well. What star sign are you, Ian? I'm when a you say you're closer to Scorpio. Oh, I see. So you're like the other side. Of Scorpio. Sagittarius. Yeah. Ah, I've got my moon sign in Sagittarius. Ah. So, so yeah. So I, I don't know which artist I would be drawn to. I'd like to hope I'd be drawn to Tasman Archer, probably. I don't know. Mm, that's, yeah. that's quite kind of autumnal and kind of the beginning of winter and things, I suppose, isn't it? It yeah. is. No, it definitely is. And so are you quite fiery then, Ian? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm, yeah, it's a quite <laughs> yeah. fiery sign, but it's, quite jolly. Yes, I think so. I, mm. I, think, I think basically split personality is probably the best way to describe <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, no, um, fiery and uh, probably. My yeah. mum says it's the red hair as well. Oh, the red hair. My sister has red hair as well. Yeah, that's but, it. Uh, yeah, no, that's a very important part. Oh, the, the whole identity, definitely. There we go. So, yes, yeah, so <laughs> Sophie Hawkins very much would fit into that mould, I would think. And she's a percussionist as well. Is she really? I didn't know that. She oh, attended, yeah, she attended Manhattan School of Music for a year as a percussionist before leaving. So, uh, but then to be a percussionist and then to bring in a John Bonham sample seems a bit, I mean, um, she could have done, could have done <laughs> it herself. Could have done it yourself, Sophie. Could have done it yourself, yes, to I mean... be honest. <laughs> there we go. We, we talked a bit about Peter Gabriel earlier. It's a fantastic track. It's a long track, but it it's is. an album track. Completely. I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised to see this on here because it really yeah. is one of my favourite songs of Peter Gabriel's, probably one of my favourite songs by anyone. Mm. So I was like, oh, hang on. It was a yeah. single. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't feel like it, does it? But it's um, another really powerful, intense, dark song. It's got a bitterness to it, hasn't it? There's a degree of hope that comes through it, but that's what Peter Gabriel does, though. He's yeah. always done that light and shade and, and kind of pulls that through. And Yeah, and I suppose it, it sort of reflects the complexity of a, of a relationship that's breaking down, doesn't yep. it? You know, it's not you're not going to feel completely black and white about what's what's happening. And, uh, yeah. and that, that really is conveyed but I just remember thinking I was shocked by this track because it was like you know you literally hear someone telling someone else to shut their mouth and it's like whoa yeah, that's so hostile it, it's it was quite whoa it made a big impact on me but but musically alone I just that's amazing it. It, is, it is amazing so and it actually made me going back doing this album mm. made me go back to the Us album and listen yeah. back to that actually as well which yeah. again is is often I think perhaps overlooked in Peter Gabriel's collection and yes it's a, it's a superb album Absolutely. And of course, you know, another mention for our, our good pal Daryl Eastley, who yes. wrote his biography. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what's your favourite song on us, would you say? I actually am probably drawn to Blood of Eden. Okay. It's the, the fragility of that duet with Sinead mm. O'Connor. Um, it's got some of Peter Gabriel's finest vocal performances on it. He hits those really big high notes. Um, I'll have to listen to it again. I'll yeah, have to listen to that again. It's, yeah. um, it's lovely. But actually, as a whole album, it's just, it's so wonderfully atmospheric. And again, I think autumnal. I think mm. it, it has that kind of feel of, you know, that kind of time of year. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Right. Where are we next? Enya. Mm. Good days. Enya, being yeah. Enya and doing Enya. Do, and well. you're doing Enya, yeah. There, there's only one Enya. I like Clanad, and of course, you know, she yeah. came out of that Clanad um, clan, as it were. So by the time Enya was doing her thing, I really wasn't, it wasn't for me. As I no. say, I was, you know, listening to a lot of Rage Against the Machine. So it was a very <laughs> slight contrast, I suppose. But although, as I say, broad church, you know, and all that, yeah, but um, yeah. I wouldn't have paid much attention to it. Although I really liked her aesthetic. Mm. Um, I didn't love it, but I kind of liked that she had a whole aesthetic that went with the music. Again, a kind of synesthetic uh, yeah. thing going on there, sort of, you know, so you'd have these very impressionistic 
uh, visuals around her, wouldn't you? Like yeah, the videos yeah. and the sets and the artwork and all the rest of it. And I kind of thought, you know, that was quite an interesting thing to do. But yeah, it didn't really, you know, set my world on fire. How about no. you? Uh, no, no, I, I certainly wasn't carrying much Enya around with me in 1992, <laughs> to be honest. Um, Fair enough. Um, 1992, when I was queuing up for my cider and black curtain, I never thought I need to go back and have some Enya. Later yes. On. Is there um, any Enya on the on the uh, student any, union jukebox? Any Enya. <laughs> We're almost at the end of the album, and we have got "Crying" by Roy Orbison and Katie Lang. Again, it's that holding pattern of 1992. Can't work <laughs> out why that why that was released. Um, and last, but by no means least, it was the year of the Barcelona Olympics. And what should we do? We'll re-release Freddie Mercury and Montserrat Caballé <laughs> and Barcelona, and we'll get it to number two. And there we go. Well, what, I mean, I, I don't know what to say about this, really. I think I'm sure at the time I... You know, it was the kind of year that we were all kind of, well, most of us were sort of still kind of reeling from the death of Freddie Mercury, yeah, really. It would yeah. only have been about a year, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And I, 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 think I, I think I was in mourning for Freddie Mercury. I, mm. I remember being quite affected by his death. And again, I, you know, going back to what we were saying before about these kind of lines in the sand that were appearing during this, this yeah. funny year. You know, it was like, you know, the yeah. ending of something. Freddie Mercury's death. You know the announcement, and then him actually passing was very, very quick. Yeah, and 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 I think that hit people as well. And and there was just that kind of want people wanted to be reminded of that great artistry that he had. You know, yeah. Um, yes, that's true. It, I mean, it gives this compilation a kind of fitting end as well. It had been a big year for Freddie Mercury's legacy, and you know, mm. and obviously was going to continue on as well. So. Totally. And there's something very joyful about it. And, you know, the kind of beautiful rapport between himself and Montserrat Caballet. Yeah, it was, there was something very colourful and uplifting about it and, and joyful. And I suppose maybe as you say, the fact they ended the compilation with this is, is kind of relevant in itself. It kind of, um, you know, it is, it's like a kind of big flourish of a stage curtain or something like that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, And it ends this wonderful tapestry that was now 23 (laughs) with all its kind of ins and outs. But you know what? It is actually really good as we said earlier, to go through all the warts and all of an album like this, because it would be very easy to say 1992 was just this. Yeah. Actually, there's a lot on there that, you know, we have to revisit. It is a time, it, it, it's a time capsule because of the warts and all thing. And it's like, you mm. can't go back to, you know, when you're looking back at the history of a year and sort of you look at the Wikipedia page at the things that happened, you can't just sort of say, well, I'm going to completely ignore the things that I didn't like. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to pretend to remember the things. That, it just, life doesn't work yeah. like that. And it is, yeah. it's just, you know, life is richer for, you know, the waistcoat uh, <laughs> brigade. <laughs> As well. There's uh, plenty of them in these things too. <laughs> so, as a 13-year-old, what would have been your highlights of this album? Let's have another little look through. I, I, well, I would say Digging in the Dirt, definitely. Yeah, Charles and Eddie, Peter Gabriel, and maybe one more, I suppose. Well, it kind of feels like I'm cheating saying John Lee Hooker. Um, no, you can have John Lee Hooker. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, well, I think I will then. Yeah. I'm going to go jo- John Lee Hooker. Yeah, those would be my, my top three. How about you? I would, pro- I would take Tasman Arch just for that unique sound of things. Mm. I think Charles and Eddie, definitely. Yeah. And Arrested Development, I think. Um, oh, yes, are there. that's a great choice. Just, just, just for that freshness that's there as well. And that's mm. not to dismiss tracks like Crowded House and In Excess and Heaven 17. These are all great songs. But if you're looking for those indications of what's coming next, something like Arrested Development kind of leads you into so much of what the 90s was going to become for for pop and R&B. That's a really good point. And it's such a beauty as well. Mm. It's just a beauty, that track. Missing tracks. Some of these big album artists, I think, could have been taken out and swapped for a bit more indie. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was looking at some of the indie releases, certainly in the kind of Grebo side of things, I realised, oh, well, actually, that, as I said, 1992 was a sort of funny year mm. where they all seemed to have a bit of a break from being, yeah. in the, I don't know. In the, were there any levellers coming out? I, I remember I really liked the levellers. I don't know. The one that, that I think was missing, and, and it's, it's maybe a bit of an anomaly in some respects, but The Wedding Present released yeah. 12 tracks. Every, you know, they released a, a single every month in 1992. That's right. There's no nod at all to the wedding present even, you know, because they did have 10 top 20 hits across that year. Right. And you think, oh, do you know what? It would have been nice to have that presence on here. Totally. Yeah, no, it would. And I would certainly have rather had the wedding present on there than, than, than you, you know. Simply red. 
<laughs> yeah, or, or definitely Billy Ray Cyrus. I would yeah, say. That was, absolutely. So yeah, I'd much rather have have that. I mean, what about REM as well? Well, that was another one I thought of because REM had released Automatic for the People. Yeah, and they did pop up the following year in a couple of new albums. But a track like Drive, I mean, yeah, I I scribbled a few. I thought of that. I thought Carter as well. Yeah. Could have been on there. Um, Ride as well. I mean, maybe getting a bit indie out there, but you know, Ride had a fantastic 1992. As did the Inspiral Carpets. But yeah. um, but and yeah. Rage Against the Machine as well. I know. Yeah, Rage I know. Against the Machine. I thought could have been on there. So, but would that have been too heavy? I was going to also say, what about Björk? But then I think she was 93. So it was like there was almost, as you said, it's this kind of like the this this apex yeah. point where yeah. things are about to tip into somewhere quite interesting. But yeah. In, in and of itself, that makes it interesting, I suppose. Zoe, thank you so much for joining me here on the Back to Me podcast. And we are headed back to 1992. I think we've nailed it. And I think more than anything else, we have done the sales of waistcoats, the world <laughs> of goods today. <laughs> Absolutely, couldn't agree more. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to uh, to time travel with you. And I am also now going to go back and I am going to listen to Peter Gabriel's Us album all over again. Oh, me too. 